It's your lucky day. Yes, it's Friday the 13th. That is January 13, 2023. And this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This podcast is brought to you by Room Now Live 2023, being held in Dallas, Fort Worth, a stone's throw from the airport on March 18th and 19th. Be there, be square. We have a lot to report since we haven't covered the news since the first of the year. Let's get right into it. Uh, A&R has published um, a test of the new classification criteria for GCA. As you know, it's a point system. You know, it's got all those things like biopsy five points, um, temporal artery tenderness two points. You need six or more points to have the diagnosis according to the new ACR criteria. In this study, they they studied s- almost 700 patients who they suspected as having GCA, all of whom also had uh, ultrasound, ultrasound imaging. Ultimately, a little less about than 40% were diagnosed with GCA, um, and 400 were not. The sensitivity of the criteria in this cohort was pretty good um, and equal to the studies that were done for development was about 87%. Specificity in this cohort was a little bit lower uh, at 70%. They found 13% of GCA patients who did not meet criteria. Moreover, they had about 30% of the patients had six or more points um, but did not have GCA. Those were largely patients with PMR. What do we say from this? Well, it looks like the classification criteria used for studies have applicability in making diagnoses, but criteria are not perfect. And there are those who slip through the cracks and those who may be overdiagnosed. And that's where you, the expert, comes in. Use that as you may. A letter to the British Medical Journal looked at uh, the efficacy of JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib, in patients with polymyalgia rheumatica. It's basically a small study, a single arm study, basically suggesting that it works. And I think we've said this many times before, but I put it out there because there's a lot going on in the PMR world in 2023. Possibly new drugs of the IL-6 type that will be approved. And now what? We have a JAK inhibitor or them possibly, you know, inching in on this. They need to do large trials and not have all these single case reports, which there's a lot of single case reports about the, you know, the dis, the sort of wide array of benefits of JAK inhibitors. But they do you no good when it comes to you, use it, you using it in clinic. They need clinical trials. I would suggest they do a clinical trial. Ferritin, as you know, you love using hyperferritinemia um, as a uh, diagnostic indicator of either HLH or Stills disease or macrophage activation syndrome. But you know, ferritin is, of course, comes from largely the liver. It comes from iron overload states. It's seen in sepsis. I've seen more hyperferritinemia in really bad lupus patients than I've seen in Stills disease. And I've seen way more Stills disease than I think almost anyone. So, um, what did we learn about ferritin this time around? Two things. One, a differential diagnosis of patients with hyperferritinemia greater than 500 in the ICU, critically ill. In this study, the leading causes were sepsis, liver disease, significant liver disease or liver failure, hematologic malignancies, and of course, HLH. 
this was a single center study of almost 2,500 patients in the ICU. So again, we like to talk about the rheumatologic causes, but those are the real world causes of hyperferinemia. Also, interestingly, this week, Nature Reviews and Rheumatology had an interesting uh, article about ferritin as being more than just a biomarker of systemic activity. I mean, it is an acute phase reactant, and that's why it's up. But in Stills disease, it's only up in 50% of patients. And I'm not even talking about hyperferinemia. It's much less. But it can be a biomarker in some Stills patients. But in this Nature uh, Reviews paper, they talk about ferritin being able to directly cause neutrophil activation and then also to induce NETs, um, which you know are significantly involved in immune activation. So these are sort of innate immune responses, and ferritin is often innate immune response that has then amplifying effects. So theoretically, uh, high ferritin levels may be pathogenically involved in a condition like Stills disease or macrophage activation syndrome. I thought this was interesting. The New England Journal had an, uh, a review of, and they called the paper safety, the safety of, of, of inpatient hospitalization or something along those lines. Uh, it was a, uh, a single center, I think Harvard affiliate, 2,800 patient study of admissions, and they counted up the adverse events. And one or more adverse events in hospital admissions were seen in 24%. Um, of that 978 patients, um, almost a quarter of these were preventable. A quarter preventable of the ones that had AEs. The overall number of all patients admitted to the hospital, preventable AEs accounted for about 1 in 15 admissions. Of the preventable ones, um, uh, 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 actually, of all the AEs, 32% were serious, and very few ended up in death. So, again, the risk of preventable AEs, 1 in 15, the, the risk of serious uh, AEs was about 1 in 100. The most common cause of adverse events, or AEs, were drug reactions, uh, and that accounted for 39%. Um, this is, if you like safety, this is interesting data. Um, RMD, RMD Open had a, a, um, an analysis of what happens when you taper steroids. There's a lot, of course, I, I hate all these tapering studies. You know, taper DMARDs in a combination regimen, taper the biologic and save money, blah, blah, blah. The bottom line is, yeah, you can taper one out of two drugs, maybe the biologics more successfully, or may, actually maybe the methotrexate more successfully, but there's always a downside, meaning you can't get completely off a drug, and there is a risk of wor disease worsening and flare. But what about tapering the steroid? Uh, in this study, a case crossover study of 508 RA patients who were starting on a biologic, more than half of them were taking steroids I think it's actually three quarters of them taking steroids at the same time. And they showed that if you, uh, when these doctors lowered the steroid doses to below 2.5 milligrams per day, a significantly greater number of RA flares occurred. However, if they lowered the steroids down, like you would lower your steroids, to greater than a dose of 2.5, you know what? They did better. So, again, um, there was probably about a 40% higher rate of flares when you lowered the, the steroid dose below 2.5. I think that those are words to live by. Being on a little bit of steroids, 
although we've talked about that in the past, there still is a small risk associated with that. For some patients, might be the smart thing to do. Um, again, it has to be individualized. Found another unusual uh, citation this week, one that I had not seen before. Uh, in A&R, it was published that patients with anti-mitochondrial antibodies may be associated with more erosive disease in rheumatoid arthritis. What? Really? Study of 400 patients with RA. They found, in, and they use a few different cohorts, and so in these different cohorts, the uh, AMA positivity rate, AMA positivity rate was, guess what? That's right, you got it right, 14 to 26%. Uh, if you had anti-mitochondrial antibodies, you were more likely to have erosive disease, interstitial lung disease, uh, and all of this was independent of being rheumatoid factor or CCP positive. We're finding out in the last few years that um, autoimmune diseases, especially lupus and RA, are, are, may very well be mitochondrial-driven, in part, driven diseases. We're going to need to understand that biology going forward. Now, I know that you all subscribe to, but often don't read that journal, Molecular Psychiatry. I'm a big fan. And that's why I'm pointing out in, in this particular study that they showed that RA patients on hydroxychloroquine have a significantly lower risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. A study of nearly um, 110,000 RA patients who were starting hydroxychloroquine or methotrexate, they followed them over a number of years, uh, and they showed about a, on average, 10% lower risk of dementia. It ranged from 8 to 16%, depending on, uh, I think it was 8% for um, Alzheimer's and 16% for dementia was actually what those numbers meant. Again, uh, will the wonders of hydroxy hydroxychloroquine ever cease to end? I don't think so. The FDA uh, recently accepted a new BLA biologic license application for CTP-13. Um, that's the uh, infliximab, infliximab biosimilar that's currently out there in multiple uh, forms, including, I think, Inflectra. This uh, CTP-13 comes from Celtrion, and they put out a press release in that they submitted um, this drug again to the FDA, this time for approval for use as a subcutaneous administration. You know, it's been approved in other countries. I said it would never be approved in the United States because um, a biosimilar definition means the drug has to be you know, sort of very much the same structurally and given the same for the same reason. Well, you know, the, ori the originator, Remicade, was never approved and never given as a subcutaneous product. This has been proved in other countries, and maybe that's their back door into getting this approved. It'll be interesting to see how the FDA handles this BLA uh, application. Jay Room published on something that you, I think, may have had some head-scratching moments over in the last few years. You know, patients, RA patients, or patients on methotrexate who have liver disease, what do we do? It seems like if we send them to the liver guys, they always do those fibro scans. And uh, are those scams or scans? I don't know. And um, it turns out, and it's a test for liver fibrosis, it's got basically um, a, a strong utility in patients with fibrotic liver disease and cirrhosis and whatnot, and it has prognostic implications. But its utility in um, RA patients on methotrexate, not none. And so they sent 520 patients 
for fibro scans. And uh, again, the kind that you would worry about, um, F3 or F4 liver fibrosis was seen in 13% of controls and 12.7% of arthritis patients, um, RA patients. Methotrexate was not at all correlated with fibro scan scores. Um, they did show that uh, liver stiffness as measured by this was correlated with BMI, uh, waist size, being male, and age. So um, do you do fibro scans? I, I don't. And so I put out a, a Twitter poll and I think a 140 or 150 rheumatologists responded to that and about 75% say they've never done this. And then people gave us only, it was less a single digit number said I do this um, sometimes in my patients on methotrexate. I don't think we should do it unless we're seeing a lot of problems or unless the hepatologist recommend it. Um, one of the versions of Lancet, you know, they got Lancet rheumatology or Lancet pulmonary, Lancet, um, you know, left pinky. Um, one of their versions came up with an article about pulmonary fibrosis and the predictive value of the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. We've talked about that before. It's a great um, and cheap indicator. It requires some finger math, um, you know, seven divided by three, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's the lymphocyte count, absolute lymphocyte count divided by, uh, divided by the ratio uh, to lymphocytes. Um, and this was studied in 205 patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And they basically showed it had predictive value on worsening of lung function and lung outcomes. An NLR of greater than 2.9 was associated with a, uh, a almost twofold increased risk of death related, of course, to mostly to the lung disease. So, um, again, it might be something worth considering in your, in your patients who have fibrotic lung disease. It's easy. It's cheap. Uh where did this come from? This came from uh, JAMA Dermatology, a handout on the DRESS syndrome, drug reactions with eosinophilia and systemic syndrome symptoms, meaning the DRESS syndrome. These people have fever, high white counts, uh, lymphadenopathy, organ dysfunction, rashes, etc. It's all brought on. These are adverse drug reactions. Uh, most common drugs would be uh, seizure drugs. Uh, antibiotics, mostly either um, vancomycin, um, Bactrim, or minocycline. The most common room drug is allopurinol. These usually have, this can affect kids and adults. Uh, it usually happens two to four weeks after beginning a medicine. Um, and, you know, about one in 1,000 of the patients taking the drugs that are implicated can come down with dress. So you need to know that this maybe a 1 in 1,000 complication of your patients who are on allopurinol. Another article this week talked about the risk of uh, cardiac manifestations and autoimmune disease, specifically for new onset atrial fibrillation. This is a, U a United Kingdom biobank study that showed that AFib was associated um, with um, a number of different cardiovascular conditions, I'm sorry, a number of different autoimmune conditions, including Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, RA, PAN, SLE, and scleroderma. Uh, again, the actual relative risk or odds ratios, hazard ratios, I should say, is you know, about a, a 30 to 80% increase risk just by having those disorders. Uh, I know you're, you may not be interested in the diet literature, but I thought an interesting article in JAMA came out this um, past week about Ozempic uh, or 
glutide, which is a GLP-1 agonist. This is being used in, not just for the treatment of diabetes, but also being used in weight loss clinics. It's a lot less toxic and it works. So this was a study of weekly Ozempic uh, given to patients with obesity, I think a BMI of greater than 27, over 400 patients. They looked at three-month and six-month outcomes. The mean weight loss at three months was 6.7 kilograms. That's like 13, 14 pounds. The mean weight loss at six months was 12.3 kilograms. That's like 26, 27 pounds. What? Um, so greater than 10% of patients, um, let's see, greater than 10% and 8% had greater than, I don't know. Um, so as much as 10% of patients had greater than 20% weight loss. Uh, turns out that if you were diabetic, you didn't do better with this diabetes drug. You actually did a little less well in weight loss than nine diabetic patients. All interesting, all pertains to your patients. Obesity is a big problem for all uh, other disciplines in medicine. We're gonna end with two uh, unusual reports. One from the Karolinska and Lars Klarskog's group. RA disease activity is improved by alcohol. Drink up folks, good news, happy days are here again and it's not even St. Patty's Day. This is a, a prospective co- cohort called the, the IRA, the E-I-R-A, Epidemiologic Investigation of Rheumatoid Arthritis. 1,228 patients followed prospectively with newly diagnosed RA. Turns out that at baseline, non-drinkers had higher disease activity, more joint pain, more swollen joints, more tender joints compared to drinkers. What? Turns out this data was repeated and shown with one one year of follow-up with therapy. So we do know that alcohol, in in addition to its many other hazards, is anti-inflammatory. And there are a lot of examples of this. Um, They did show that those who were, um, uh, what happened? People who were um, switched from being Alcohol users to non-users during the follow-up period had a worsening of their disease activity. This was irrespective of the therapies that were employed. Alcohol consumption was correlated with ACP negativity, um, meaning that uh, um, 67% versus 79% and RF negativity, 63% and um, 80%. Interesting data. Um, Do you advocate for alcohol or against it? I would advocate against it if there was a a problem of significant liver disease and a problem of overuse and misuse and abuse. Um, And those are hard um, bits of information to come by sometimes. Um, Without evidence of that, Um, I liberally allow my patients to use alcohol. I don't have any restrictions on my RA patients taking methotrexate. There really is no downside here. Um, We're all really very uptight about this in the United States. Ask rheumatologists what their policy and rules are about alcohol and methotrexate. And believe me, everyone's got a rule based on no data at all. Whereas all rheumatologists that I know in Canada and Europe and Germany, Austria, blah, 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 Scandinavia, there are, they don't have the same rules. And there's a lot more alcohol use without more um, uh, untoward effects. Uh, again, rethink that. Um, tell me if you disagree with me. 
Lastly, JAMA had a report this week about cannabis being used for pain. Not surprisingly, that's a good excuse to use it, is it not? Especially when it's prescribed by the guy behind the counter who's selling it, and his name is Paco. Uh, So in the United States, there are 36 states that have uh, legally approved medical cannabis programs. Um, and so in a bunch of these states, they, there's a network of uh, patients with chronic pain, uh, and, and they found, uh, or, uh, and I guess, uh, anyway, they surveyed uh, 1,724 patients. Turns out that 26% say they use cannabis for chronic pain in the last 12 months, and 23% in the last 30 days. If you um, ask the can- those who use cannabis, they would say that um, more than half of them believe that the use of cannabis allowed for them to use less prescription opioids, um, prescription non-opioids, over-the-counter pain drugs, less, p- less physical therapy, less cognitive behavioral therapy. So will c- these cannabis programs supplant, improve the opioid problem in the United States. This data might suggest that's possible. I don't know that we've truly seen that as yet. Um, but might it you know, affect these other measures of, of, of pain not being controlled? Uh, again, we do need to know more about cannabis use for our patients. But again, I'd like to hear more about this from someone smart um, and trained and a researcher as opposed to someone who's selling the product. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. I want to remind you, Room Now Live, March 1819 in Dallas. Um, we've got a fabulous faculty. Let me just read you the faculty. It's, I think, stellar. It's chock full of brains here. It's Kevin Dean, Stanley Cohen, Michael Brenner, Philip Conahan, Laura Coates, Eric Ruderman, Christina Chambers, Rob Spira, Anisha Dua, Carol Langford, Sergio Schwartzman, Monica Schwartzman, Joel Kremer, Janet Pope, Jonathan Kay, Lawrence Kelly is our keynote speaker. Come and hear that one. Lawrence Arnaud from Paris, um, Rich Fury, uh, Ken Kalunian, Atul Diodar, Dennis uh, Padabni, John Ravel, and of course, your host and moderators, Dr. Artie Kavanaugh, and myself. Be there. RoomNow.live. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.